poetry of St. John of the Cross has been overlooked for quite a few centuries, as our speaker was saying, and it's relegated to the, to the back of the books of his writings, and now has been given kind of that, that fresh new look, that appreciation of his poetry that maybe hadn't been there before. And as I shared with you, the, the stanzas of the soul that we have been praying at the beginning of each talk is really what then led to his, his writing The Ascent of Mount Carmel and The Dark Night of Soul to explain the basically the poetic imagery, the poetic meaning to, to this beautiful poem. And so, as I encourage you, this is a poem to, to really pray with and to really get to know it in that way that, that you can know it inside and out. You can, you can recite it, um, like I say, as you're looking out there at a beautiful sunrise or sunset. You can recite it as you're in a chapel or a beautiful church. Um, and just, it's a wonderful way for us to open ourselves to the mystery of God and that love of God, which is ultimately what St. John the Cross wanted us to come to know and experience. And so let's go ahead and pray the stanzas of the soul. One dark night, fire with love's virgin longings. Ah, the sheer grace, I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled, in darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised. Ah, the sheer grace, in darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. On that night, in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in a place where no one appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone, there he lay sleeping, and I caressing him, there in a breeze from the fanning cedars. When the breeze blew from the turret, as I parted his hair, it wounded my neck with its gentle hand, suspending all my senses. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. So the last and final talk, and this looks at book three of the Ascent of Mount Carmel. So St. John of the Cross divided that book up into three parts. He calls each part a book. So we should not uh, get too confused that uh, these three books actually make up one book, but then that one book is connected to the other book, The Dark Night of the Soul, and that, remember, he kind of goes back and forth between those. So to really get that complete and total understanding, uh, eventually we do have to read those two works and to see how he does fit those together. But for our retreat this weekend is coming to that just good understanding of the basics of the Ascent of Mount Carmel, because with that, we then can understand his writings in the dark night of the soul, I think, in an even clearer and better way. And he gives everything more or less that is essential in the Ascent of Mount Carmel. And then he kind of expands and goes further with that uh, in the dark night of the soul. So today, uh, we're going to basically be looking 
at what we were talking about at the end of the last talk, which was our understanding that everything that applies to the intellect that we've been talking about all along now applies to memory and will as well. So what we saw in the previous two talks was that the, the intellect must enter that dark night where it knows nothing. And what it does know is then given passively to the soul by God. So we surrender everything that we know because the intellect, right, can only know through natural uh, knowing, whereas God in that passive uh, activity in us, uh, he is able to then take us to that next level in which we ourselves are given that supernatural knowledge by him. So we're not acquiring that on our own. We're not acquiring that through our intellects. We're not acquiring that through the natural means. God is giving that to us. We are passive. God is active. He is the one now giving that to us. And it is in a supernatural way. So the dark night of the intellect relies solely on faith. And the dark night is required of the intellect is also required of the memory and the will as well. So the memory recall goes towards hope and the will goes towards charity. And until all three of these enter the dark night, the soul can never know or experience the mystical union with God. So since much of what was spoken about the intellect applies to the memory and will, this presentation from Friar John is not as in-depth as what we examined in the previous two talks. So remember how we started out with the bread, the, the slice of bread, and then we got into the meat. So yesterday was a pretty intense day for, 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 for all of you, right? Um, and even for me as a presenter, because I'm, I'm trying to break this down in, in a way that's understandable, but not overwhelming. Don't want to scare you away from St. John of the Cross. I want to, to bring you to a greater appreciation and, and, and love for his writings and to be able to really come to know and experience uh, what he, he wants to draw us to, which is that, that mystical union with God. And so he basically is saying everything that I said more or less about the intellect and talking about how we're doing that active part in then darkening our senses. We're doing the active part in darkening the, the spiritual goods. And then God's doing that passive uh, so that we're passive, but God is now active uh, in the sensory. And once again, in the spiritual, uh, we're passive, but God is active and he's acting on the spiritual in a way and both of these are God is acting in that supernatural way. Whereas in these where we're active, we're acting in that natural way. So basically he's saying, okay, how everything applied with the intellect, with all of this, the memory and the will, they, they pretty much follow the, the same approach. So he says, I'm not going to go through the memory and the will and just kind of repeat everything all over again. He says, just know what you understood and learned about the intellect and, and how we darken that. And then how God uh, takes it further from there once we've done our part. And the same with the spiritual goods, once we've done our part and God then takes us even further. So he's gonna do that with the memory and the will as well, okay? So the goal of writing all of this Friar John says, is to impart instructions for advancing in contemplation to union with God. All these sensory means and exercises of the faculties must consequently be left behind and in the silence so that God himself may affect the divine union in the soul. As a result, one has to follow this method of disencumbering, emptying, and depriving the faculties of the natural rights and operations to make room for the inflow and illumination of the supernatural. So the soul must journey by knowing God by what he is not, rather than through what he is. 
We read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Friar John, he sees in this scripture that the memory cannot hold on to its limited forms or distinct knowledge of God. And then at the same time, really be united to a God that has no form or image that memory can comprehend. So he says, we either cling to the image or the form of God that is far from the reality of who he is, or we give up those memories, enter darkness, and free ourselves to advance towards the active night of the soul, where we will experience God in a way that we cannot even begin to comprehend. So you see how he, he uses the scripture in such a, a, a beautiful way. Yeah, if I'm going to hold on to, to the limited forms and images in my memory of, of, of who God is, of what God is, and I just want to cling to that, that's kind of like mammon. And But if I really want to get to know God, I really want to experience him in that in a more, more powerful way, then I let go of all of those memories. I, I darken those, and then God takes me even further, and he, he, he darkens it even further, and then illuminates himself to me in a way that my memory could never know or understand, because God is... He can't be limited by the forms and images that we give to him. And so that's why the memory, to a certain degree, you know, can only go so far in, in, in trying to comprehend God. And then it must admit to itself that it, that it really uh, is out of its league to really come to know and experience God in that more powerful uh, way. Uh, the memory is going to have to surrender. So the first to be surrendered must be the natural knowledge of the memory. All that is formed from the five senses and fashioned or evoked from sensory knowledge. You know, especially when we were children, you know, you imagine God the Father. I always imagined him, you know, he had a big, long beard, you know, gray beard. And, you know, because you see those images in the books and stuff and kids were very impressionable, right? And so... We take these on, and, and that kind of stays in our memory. That's kind of one of the images that we have of God, and then we add other ones. And little by little, you know, we're kind of forming this, this, this construct of God in our memory. But in reality, it is, it is night and day. It is, it is so far from the reality of what God really is. And so we have to say, I need to just surrender all of that God, and, and you just darken that. And so, so this is a fascinating section. I, I really enjoyed this, this part of his book because uh, Friar John speaks about the forgetfulness that will occur in erasing the memory. And here's what he writes. Owing to the absorption of his memory in God, a person will show many deficiencies in exterior behavior and customs. He will forget to eat or drink or fail to remember whether or not he performed some task or saw a particular object or saw some, or said something, all because the absorption of his memory in God. So some of you might be saying, well, already got that step taken care of, Father. <laughs> some of you might just be further along on this than, than the rest of us. Uh, I'm always forgetting. I can never remember where my car keys are. I can never remember where I left my wallet, my purse. Um, that was always fun with, with mom. You know, we're, we're in a hurry. We, we, we got to get to church. We're going to be late if we don't get in the car right now. And then she can't find her purse. She can't find the, the keys because they're in the purse. And so she tell, yells to all the kids, you know, find my purse. And so we all spread out through the house. We're all looking to find our purse, you know, and oh, here it is behind the couch or here it is underneath this, the coffee table or, you know, someplace. And so it was always kind of a, a fun thing to, you know, find mom's purse because mom's forgotten once again where it is. 
which always amazed us because it was so full of stuff. It was so big. It's like, how could you lose something that big? You know, it's just so, so this, this whole thing of forgetting, you know, it can actually be quite helpful, especially when it comes to sin. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, he writes about how memory is, it can be a big obstacle to overcoming sin. And why is that? Because the memory of the pleasure tied to the sin entices a person back to the sin. So if one could forget the pleasure of the sin, it would be easier to avoid it in the future. But you see the pleasure of that sin, it's, it's kind of like wooing and calling us back. You know, like the sirens that were calling out, right, to Odysseus and his ship is going to, you know, crash on the rocks, you know, and then they take, take remember, the, the, like the wax, they put it in their ears. So not to hear the sirens, they're, they're calling them to come and crash their ships on the rock. And so that's the way that that pleasure uh, of sin is. It's just wooing, calling us. And St. Thomas Aquinas says the best thing that can happen is you ask God, help me to just forget the pleasure connected to that sin. And Thomas Aquinas says that is going to put us in a, such a better place in going forward and avoiding sin in the future. So now once one has that habit of union, <clears throat> then these lapses in memory will no longer be present. So once that, that union is achieved, you know, then, then the memories that uh, God, you know, wants us to retain, um, those, those will, will uh, basically no longer uh, be present, but everything concerning the moral natural life will be perfected. So, so kind of what we keep in our memory and that we've been using to, to kind of help us along and to guide us, uh, God is going to perfect all of that. Uh, and he's going to give to us then uh, in that supernatural way into our memories, uh, the, the perfection of these things. And this is because our memories are, you know, they're, they're transformed in that supernatural state and the knowledge and forms of our memory that we had before, they're gone. Uh, God, God has superseded those, right, in a huge way. And so why would he then say, well, I'm going to give now back to you, you know, what you learned at eight or 16 or 24. Uh, he, he's going to know, he's going to give us supernaturally something that goes way beyond those forms and images. And so God becomes the one in control of our memory. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? It's like, wow. I'm like, well, God, you can take over right now because, you know, I need all the help I can get, right? It's like, so, so that is a wonderful way of how that, that transforms our memory. And Friar John, he puts this well. He says, for God's spirit makes them know what must be known and ignore what must be ignored. Remember what ought to be remembered with or without forms and forget what ought to be forgotten and makes them love what they ought to love and keeps them from loving what is not in God. And it's just, that's something you can go back to that again and again and just meditate upon that and the depth of that, of ignore what must be ignored, remember what ought to be remembered, forget what should be forgotten, and then makes us love what we ought to love. Such was the prayer and work of Our Lady, the most glorious virgin. Raised from the very beginning to this high state of mystical union, she never had the form of any creature impressed upon her soul, nor was she moved by any, for she was always moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is the ultimate goal for you and I, that we will always be moved by the Holy Spirit. Then we will be like Our Lady of Mount Carmel. In short, the spiritual person should ordinarily take this precaution do not store up in the memory the objects of hearing, sight, smell, taste, or touch, but leave them immediately and forget them. And endeavor, if necessary, to be successful in forgetting them as others are in remembering them. This should be practiced in such a way that no former figure of any of these objects remains in the memory as though one were not in the world at all. 
So a reminder, you know, these memories, when one is doing meditation, they can actually be helpful. So it is only when one decides to seek the dark night that one then voluntarily gives these memories up. And that is partly why there is a reluctance by so many to seek the dark night of the soul because they, they don't want to surrender those memories. They're afraid, you know, they're going to lose those memories that are precious to them. But in fact, God's going to transform those in a way that's going to perfect them and make them even better. So we should never be afraid of surrendering those memories to God. A warning from Fire John is that although at times the spiritual person does not experience the benefit of this suspension of knowledge and forms, he should not grow weary, for God will not fail to come to his aid at a suitable time and is expedient to endure and suffer patiently and with hope for so remarkable a blessing. And again, although it is true that a person will hardly be found whose union with God is so continuous that his faculties without any form are always divinely moved. Nevertheless, there are those who are very habitually moved by God and not by themselves and their operations. So once again, he's talking about how that, you know, we, we can go into that contemplation, but we don't quite have that habit of contemplation yet. So we kind of go back to the, the, the habit of meditation. And then until we finally get that habit of contemplation down, uh, th there is kind of that, that back and forth there. And then once we get that habit of contemplation down, then we, we, we very much will remain in that uh, for the most part. You know, once in a while, he says, maybe, maybe forms will, will enter every so often because it might be difficult for someone to just continually be in that, 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 that habit of contemplation. So every so often, you know, the, there, there's some forms that we, we kind of draw back on and stuff, but then we move back into that contemplation again. And so... And he says there's some that are just so prone to that contemplation that, that they will remain in that. And, and they'll never go back to the forms that were used in meditation. So if we do not blind or darken our memory, uh, then what follows is falsehoods. Yeah, think of all the uh, political lies that have been told in the ads so far, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to just forget all those ads right now? Um, imperfections. Uh, that we remember, in which emotions of sorrow, fear, hatred, vain hope, vain joy, vain glory, etc., will cling to us. Judging others, so we remember and we recall others' good or bad deeds, and we keep a list of them, right? Yeah, that person, avoid that person at work because they're this, 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 and this, and they've done this, and this, and this, and everybody says blah, 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 and da, 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 and this, and that, and everything. And our memories get all filled up with that. And then when we approach that person, those memories are going to decide how we are going to love that person or not. You see how in that situation, all those memories, they really get in the way of love. Because we're just going to remember all the things we've been told or all the things that that person said or all the things that person did. Um, and think about the other side of that, people doing that to us. Do we really want everyone to remember everything that we've done wrong and then to hold it against us for the rest of our lives? When we say, well, no, well, then why do we do that to others? See, it's just, God, help me just forget, just forget all of these, all of these things because they're, they're not helpful. They're not drawing me closer to my love for you or my neighbor. A further reflection on this is, you know, what if we looked at each person as though meeting him or her for the first time? So maybe somebody that we've known for a while, and so we, our memory is all full of now things about that person, and that's really becoming an obstacle to us, really seeing and understanding and loving that person. And so what we say is, well, God, help me just, I just kind of forget it all, so we can just start over. So it's like meeting this person for the first time. And, 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 and that can be a very helpful way of how to move past an impasse with someone. Uh, is to just say, let's, let's just put aside all of that. Let's just, let's get to know one another once again. Let's start from this place of love 
and let's really begin to go forward from there. So we don't remember, you know, what they said or did or offended us, but just seeing them without all the memories, both good and bad, sometimes this can be incredibly difficult though, and especially when it centers around abuse because, and, and that's, a, that's a trickier one because if somebody is abusing you, you, you kind of have to remember that because the memory of that is to then, you need to avoid that person. You know, if somebody, if somebody's being beat up by their spouse, uh, that's, that's not the will of God. And you don't just say to them, well, you just stay there and you just endure it, just put up with it, you know, offer it up. It's like, no, my advice is get out. Get out while you're still alive because the abuse just continues and it intensifies and it gets to a very bad, bad place. And so that person, you know, just can't forget that. That person has to, in some ways, hold on to part of that uh, because they encounter that individual later on or that person's trying now to get back into their life. They need to remember why they need to have a very clear boundary and tell that person no. So that's kind of one of the exceptions to this. And once again, it's like God is not saying that 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 won't be there in that perfected state state, but he's going to, he's going to take it to a place where we're going to just know in a much clearer and more perfect way of how to approach all of that. And, and what is the best way of going forward from that abuse uh, and getting to that place of wholeness again. And so uh, once again, it's, it's surrendering that to God, but knowing that God is going to perfect that, and he's going to make sure we are taken care of in the meantime. And so trying to select which memories to keep and which ones we don't, that's where St. John of the Cross says, that just becomes too difficult. It gets in the way of making that advancement towards the dark night. So instead of us trying to figure out, well, which ones should I keep? Which ones are good? Which ones you know, are, maybe are even helpful uh, and things like that? Uh, Friar John says, no, just, just uh, we need to just let all of them go. So we're not trying to, to figure this out. And, we're, and we're, then we're making it much more difficult, much more burdensome, cumbersome than it needs to be. So he says, if one pays attention to this knowledge of memory, intermingled with it are a thousand imperfections and trifles, some subtle and alike that without a person's realizing it, they stick to him as pitch does to anyone who touches it. These imperfections are better overcome all at once through a complete denial of the memory. And so once again, it's, we may want to hang on to something good, but attached to that something good might be something that's not so good, and, but we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it with that clarity. And so hanging on to that is actually uh, not going to be helpful for us. So he says, just, just surrender it all. Let God sort it out. You know, we've heard that, right? <laughs> Here, God, you sort it out. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to do. Here, here's the mess of my life, Lord. You sort it out. I surrender. And, and that is a great approach. It really is, because God is going to give us back to us what our part in that is, and, and the rest of it, he's going to take away. And so, and he'll take care of it. So Friar John says, the soul should remain closed without cares or afflictions. For he who entered the room of his disciples bodily while the doors were closed without knowing how all this was possible and gave them peace will enter the soul spiritually without its knowing how or using any effort of its own. Once it has closed the doors of its intellect, memory, and will to all apprehensions, then he will fill them with peace. So remember when Jesus appeared to the, the apostles, uh, you know, they're all, the apostles decide they're all locked in the room, right? They're scared. They're scared to go out. They're scared of what's going to happen. Do they think they're going to be arrested? They're going to be crucified like Jesus was. So they're all hiding together in that room. And then Jesus appears to them, just appears. And he gets, gets through those locked doors and windows and he just appears to them. And then the first words, he says, peace be with you. And he says it again, peace be with you. Cause he can see they're just terrified. And so St. John of the Cross says that's the same way as how once we 
have you know gone into the where we allow the those those doors to be closed to the intellect memory and will so we're, we're locking out the intellect the memory and the will then jesus comes in right through through what we've locked out and he comes to us and he gives us that peace so it's a beautiful way of seeing and understanding that scripture uh, i thought that was one of the one of the really just unique scriptures that he he gives in this book that just is like wow um that insight that he has once again in taking those scriptures and enlightening us with them so the memory is also the means that the devil can utilize uh to have tremendous influence over his soul for he can add to its knowledge, other forms, ideas, and reasonings, and by means of them, move it to pride, avarice, anger, envy, etc., and insert many kinds of delusions. If the memory is annihilated concerning this knowledge and the devil is powerless. See, so once again, uh, if you don't want Satan to be able to have that influence, uh, then we have to just surrender all those memories and then Satan's powerless because he can't manipulate those memories anymore because he loves to manipulate our memories. Boy, does he love to manipulate them. He can even change people's memories. They remember something totally different than it is. Ever encountered this? Ever, ever talked to somebody and say, and they say, oh no, you said this. And I'm like, well, no, I, I didn't say that. I said this. No, you said this. I know you did. Da, da, da. Uh, it's like, there's Satan. He's trying to conjure up division. He's trying to create animosity. Da, da. He can change those memories of people so that they, they remember things not in the way that they really are, but in the way that Satan now wants them to remember them. So the way to keep him at bay is just say, Lord, I, I give all that to you. So I should like spiritual persons to have full realization of how many evils the devil causes in souls that make use of their memories of how much sadness, affliction, vain, and evil joy from both spiritual and worldly thoughts these devils occasion and the number of impurities they leave rooted in the spirit. So think about this. How many painful memories do we carry around with us? You know, I, I as, as a priest, for the number of years I've been a priest, you know, I've, I've dealt with many different souls and a lot of people are carrying around a lot of pain a lot of pain and they they don't know how to let go of it and it's fixed there in their memories and so you know we have to ask the question you know why why am i unable to to let go of that and how much does satan want to use these memories to rob us of joy peace and solitude so he has us revisiting these memories of how we were hurt he's we're going to revisit these memories of of how in some way, uh, you know, we experience something that, that's just heavy on our hearts and that just keeps us in that sadness and that we really can't come to know that joy he wants us to because those memories keep getting in the way. And so it's like, why do we revisit those memories? Why is there nothing more to, to do? Uh, why do you not recognize there's nothing more to do than to surrender them to God? And so there's much wisdom in what Friar John says. You know, think about like one of the ones that, I, that I've heard over the years is people who did not make peace with a father or mother before they died. You know, that's, that's, that's a big one. You know, they were, there was a falling out there and there was just a long period of just not getting that reconciliation. And I guess they thought they had longer, more time. And then all of a sudden they didn't. And they're just left now with that, that relationship that was broken. And then now the feelings of guilt and sadness and all the other things that go along with that. And, and, and then they just hold on to that in their memory and they keep revisiting that and they keep going back to that. You know, one of the ways that I, I tell people, uh, to help them to get past that, as I say, talk to them. They hear you right now. In fact, they understand things better. They understand, they understand you better than you understand yourself right now. Because they're in the supernatural now. They're in, they're in heaven. And talk to them. Tell them what you need to tell them right now. 
They're not gone, they're transformed. So reconcile with them now. And that can be a great way of bringing that healing. And then you can let go of those memories. They're no longer haunting the person. Also, those haunted by memories from war, that's, that's a huge one. I've talked to people that fought World War II, fought in Korea, Vietnam, those that were Desert Storm. You know, some of these soldiers, they come back really broken. They come back with memories, stuff they can't even talk about, stuff so horrible, they can't even say it out loud. And those just stay with them and haunt them and they revisit them. And as, that is where we see the wisdom of, of St. John of the Cross. He's surrender those. Give those to God. Because what are those doing? How, how are those in any way helping you? And we think also, you know, any kind of loss in a relationship, you know, and, and just the, uh, the difficult memories that go along with that, especially, you know, divorce is one of those where divorce can be very devastating for some people. And then they hold on to all those memories of it. Uh, and it keeps them from being able to enter into a new relationship. It also keeps them from really uh, having that, that relationship with God that they need to have. So when a person clings uh, too much to emotion of a memory, if the memory is good, then the person feels happiness. If the memory is bad, then the person feels sadness. If, if the memory is good, the person feels love. If the memory is bad, the person feels hate. See, so thus the soul is constantly being disturbed through these apprehensions of the memory. When all things are forgotten, nothing disturbs the peace or stirs the appetites. As the saying go, what the eye doesn't see, the heart doesn't want. So when all is forgotten, the person is freed from many suggestions, temptations, movements, which the devil inserts in souls through their thoughts and ideas, thereby occasioning many impurities and sins. Just think about how many suggestions Satan plants in our souls about revenge, pride, self-righteousness, just constantly stirring up anger and bitterness or other passions and driving us towards sin. Psalm 38, verse 7 states, Indeed, every man is disturbed in vain. Clarity is always in vain to be disturbed, since being disturbed is never any help. It's never any help. Thus, if the whole world were to crumble and come to an end, we're getting closer, aren't we? Uh, and everything, all things were to go wrong. Yeah, that sounds like what's going on right now. It would be useless to get disturbed. This is really important. For this would do more harm than good. The endurance of all with tranquil and peaceful equanimity not only reaps many blessings, but also helps the soul so that in these very adversities, it may succeed in judging them and employing the proper remedy. Isn't that great? So let's not be disturbed. Let's not all get all disturbed and worked up and just all kind of frenzied and anxious and worried and just stressed. And he says, no, don't do any of that. Approach that with that peace of Christ. And we'll be able to judge those things in the proper way and know what the proper remedy to those is. Because we as Christians, we never give up. We always go forward. We are people of hope. So we do not preach doomsday scenarios. We do not buy into defeatist attitudes. We do not allow these things to get the better of us. So what great insight, you know, from Fire John for our current times with our upcoming election, that could be the difference really between us continuing as a constitutional republic or becoming a socialist nightmare. So, you know what? It can really disturb us, but let's not let it do that. Friar John spoke about natural imaginative knowledge above. And now he's gonna speak about supernatural imaginative knowledge. So we've been speaking about the natural so far. Now he's gonna go into the supernatural imaginative knowledge. And so once again, in this, this is in memory and the impressions they leave can be at times most vivid and efficacious yet they should, like natural ones, be forgotten quickly. Because not doing so, one could mistake the natural for the supernatural, 
open oneself to vanity, make an opening for Satan, allow it to get in the way of virtue of hope because it wants to possess knowledge or have a judgment of God that will be base. So he just says, experience these, just, you know, remember, whatever effect, good effect, right? It happens immediately. And then it doesn't matter. Like, don't hang on to that. Let it go. So Friar John points out that all the visions, revelations, and feelings from heaven or whatever else one may desire to think upon and not worth, are not worth as much as the least act of humility. Humility has the effects of charity. It neither esteems nor seeks its own. It thinks no evil to save itself. It thinks no good of self, but others, but of others. So he says, all visions, revelations, feelings from heaven, nothing, nothing even gets close to just one act of humility. So to a blind soul, that's not the dark night. This is a blind soul in a negative, in a negative way, bad way. Falsehood no longer seems falsehood. Evil no longer is evil, etc. For the darkness appears to be light, the light darkness. On this account, the soul will fall into a thousand blunders and matters natural, moral, and spiritual. And what was wine will have turned to vinegar. And by their own very nature, without the devil's help, pleasure, delight, and savor blind the soul. So now as an aside... We should know pleasure and delight are not in and of themselves bad or evil, right? God gave us this creation to enjoy. And so our approach is not to say that one should never enjoy pleasure or delight. For our John says, we voluntarily give these things up in order to enter to the dark night of the soul. Um, and so this is not for the lighthearted. It is only for those willing to make those sacrifices. But in doing that with a concerted effort, and so otherwise, one then makes the conscious choice to stay in the meditative state, which he says, you know, that, that's, that's fine as well. Um, so, but the thing is, is what we do give up pleasure delights in, in this, in the natural, and then God does that in the supernatural, then he's going to give back to us, though, what far exceeds any pleasure or delight that we have known or experienced so far. So returning once again to the supernatural imaginative knowledge, Friar John states that if then a person were to make use of his own efforts, he would necessarily impede by his activity the passive communication of God, which is the spirit. He'd be engaging in his own work, which is of another and lower kind than that which God is communicating to him. The work of God is passive and supernatural. That of man is active and natural. This natural activity of man is what would extinguish the spirit. Okay, so one of the things then uh, when he's, he's trying to cl uh, close here on the dark night of the memory, um, you know, he says, you know, for as we affirm the communications of, of this knowledge are touches and spiritual feelings. So he's talking about the supernatural uh, things. That, so we're in the passive part of the memory now uh, where God is actively working in us. He says, for we affirm the communications of this knowledge are touches and spiritual feelings of union with God, the goal of which we are guiding the soul. And so one of the, one of the things is, is it'll, it'll be a wonderful experience, whatever God gives us in that passive, uh, supernatural uh, part of, of the memory. And, and it's, it's going to be immediate, and then we just let it go. Uh, then we surrender even the memory of that. Um, so in concluding this section on the dark night of the memory, recall that Friar John reiterates that hope can only exist when one does not yet possess something. If we do not yet possess God, then we have the hope of doing so. But if we already possess a lesser experience, you know, memories of God, and we're content with that, then hope diminishes because we think that we have obtained what we were looking for. See, hope only remains strong when we realize that we have only glimpsed God through our intellect and memory, and we have not really possessed him in reality. Actually, he possesses us until we let go of our former understandings, images, and memories of God and surrender them to the dark night. So there's still one more step, and that is the dark night of the will. And so let us just briefly look at that. So Friar John begins by saying, we would achieve nothing by purging the intellect and the memory in order to ground them in the virtue of faith and hope if we neglected the purification of the will through charity, the third virtue. So this is best illustrated in what it means for a person to actually engage the will in the dark night. Friar John says, we must go to the book of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
He says, this passage contains all that a spiritual man must do and all that I must teach him here if he's able to reach God by a union of the will through charity. So the strength of the soul comprises the faculties, passions, and appetites. All this strength is ruled by the will. When the will directs these faculties, passions, and appetites towards God, turning them away from all that is not God, the soul preserves its strength for God and comes to love him with all its might. So, and he says there's four feelings uh, or passions, uh, joy, hope, sorrow, and fear. And these passions manifestly keep the strength and ability of the soul for God and direct it to him. So he says the more a person, you know, rejoices over something outside of God, then the less intense will be his joy in God. See? And the more that his hope goes out towards something else outside of God, then the less uh, hope there is for God and for that mystical union. And so with the others. And so see how he's, he's showing us that. Anytime, anytime that faith, hope, or love is directed towards something outside of God, and then we're satisfied with that, then we'll just stay there. And it'll be so, so much less than what God really wants of us. And so we let go of that and we move towards really and truly knowing God in that mystical union. So the less strongly the will is fixed on God, the more dependent it is upon creatures, and the more these four passions combat the soul and rein it in. So, and he says, you know, these feelings, uh, when they're unbridled, they are the source of all vices and imperfections. And when they are in order and composed, they give rise to all the virtues. So he says these four passions, joy, hope, sorrow, and fear, they're brother-like. Where one goes, actually, the others go with it. And so if one's recollected actually, then the other three in the same measure are recollected virtually. So like wherever, wherever joy goes, then hope, sorrow, and fear, they're all going to kind of follow right along. Kind of like being, you know, with a group of peers and they're all kind of like, come on, come on, you know. And so if, if joy is going in the right direction, then the other three are going to follow uh, joy in the right direction. If joy is going in the wrong direction, then all three are going to follow joy in the wrong direction. So accordingly, you should keep in mind that wherever one of these passions goes, the entire soul, the will, and other faculties will also go. And so he says, you know, we're currently uh, discussing the active and voluntary joy. So we're in this active part here. Um, so joy can have as a source six kinds of objects or goods. These are temporal, natural, sensory, moral, supernatural, and spiritual. So temporal, natural, sensory, moral, supernatural, spiritual. He says that, that's, that's the six kinds of objects or goods of joy. And the will should rejoice only in what is for the honor and glory of God. And the greatest honor that we can give to him is to serve him according to the evangelical, evangelical perfection. Anything unincluded in such service is without value to men. So, you know, in that tef- temporal reference to joy, <clears throat> you know, it's temporal goods, riches, uh, status, positions, other dignities, children, relatives, marriage, etc. So Friar John writes that only if one rejoices in these things uh, can they be directed to God. So, so if these things are truly directed to God, uh, they're being given to God, they're being given to his glory for his kingdom, then, then can one be that, that better servant of God? And he makes a reference to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 23. Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That is, according to Fire John, those who have joy in them, for to have joy is to see them as directed towards others, to use one's wealth to help others and in the building up the kingdom of God, like we talked about last night. So the problem of riches is becoming too focused on them, allowing them to lead to other sins and selfishness. So, you know, he basically talks about how man should not be joyous over riches, neither when he possesses them nor when his brother possesses them, unless God has served through them. That's the only kind of joy we're to have about riches is if, 
if God has served through them. Um, so he basically says it's in some way uh, tolerable to rejoice in riches. Uh, it is so when they are spent and employed in the service of God for in no other way will profit be drawn from them. And this same holds for all the other goods as well. Okay. So then he says, by the very fact that a spiritual person rejoices in something and gives rein to the appetites and trifles, his relationship with God is darkened, not in a good way, his intellect clouded. So he says, uh, he, he cites Exodus 23, verse 8, and you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So he basically says, the more that one loves wealth, positions, etc., with a self-centered love, not only is the intellect affected, but one suffers from extreme lukewarmness in spiritual matters and carelessness about them. The observance of them is through a mere formality, force or habit rather than through love. And that can eventually lead to complete abandonment of God and, and making temporal goods into gods. You know, and we've, we've heard enough of that, you know, in preaching, hopefully over the years, that that's, should be pretty clear to us. Um, that it's so easy to make things out to be gods with a little G and, and money is one of those that it's, it's, it's very tempting to do that. Um, so he says, the joy we're to have for temporal goods is found in detachment. That is generosity, not in possession, which is selfishness. Okay. So natural in reference to joy is natural goods. And by this, we can mean like beauty, bodily grace, elegance, bodily constitution, all of their corporal endowments. And so, you know, one of the things is, is that vanity that goes along with beauty, that obsession with beauty. You know, our country spends billions and billions of dollars a year on cosmetics. Um, and it's all to acquire, you know, basically the fountain of youth and to keep that fountain of youth going as long as we can. And advertisers know that and they make a lot of money off of that. Um, there's a delightful story of John the 23rd, St. John the 23rd. So, you know, he's, he's that, that very kind of plump, jolly Pope. That's how people kind of remember him, right? And it says, not longer after he was elected Pope, blessed John was walking in the streets of Rome and a woman passed him and said to her friend, my God, he is so fat. Overhearing what she said, he turned around and replied, Madam, I trust you understand that the papal conclave is not exactly a beauty contest. <laughs> St. John, he has such a great sense of humor. He has some great, great one-liners. He also talked about, uh, he's the Pope that, that became Pope in the television age. And so if God knew I was going to be Pope in the television age, why didn't he give me better looks, you know? And it's just kind of like, and so he had a very great uh, sense of humor that, that really endeared people to him. And, and helped him to, to keep that humility and to, to, you know, to be able to laugh at himself in a good way. And so uh, one of the things that we uh, then just touch on briefly here is uh, that the sensory goods, you know, in reference to joy is all the goods apprehensible to the, the senses, you know, the five senses, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and to the interior faculty of the discursive, that is the wandering imagination, he says, they are goods pertinent to the exterior interior senses. And so he says, to darken and purge the will of joy and these sensory goods, you know, leads it through them to God. We must presuppose a truth. It is as I have often said that the senses, the lower part of man's nature, neither are nor can be capable of the knowledge or comprehension of God as he is in himself. So once again, it goes back to that. The will it cannot uh, in any way, shape, or form really come to know and comprehend God in the way that it really needs to. And it has to be humble enough to admit that. It has to say it can go this far, and then it must surrender. And that ultimate surrender, of course, Jesus shows that to us so beautifully in his own life, that surrender to the Father, the surrender to the Father's will in everything, everything. There's not one exception to that. So then he talks about um, how uh, we ourselves, um, we benefit from this denying of joy in the sensory goods. It's the satisfaction and joy of the will is temporarily and exceedingly increased since the Savior says in this life for one joy, they will receive a hundredfold. 
So if you deny one joy, the Lord will give you a hundredfold spiritually and temporally in this life. Isn't that great? That's a, you cannot get that kind of return on the stock market. There is just no way. And then he talks just briefly about moral goods in which we can rejoice the virtues and their habits insofar as they are moral, the exercise of any of the virtues, the practice of the works of mercy, the observance of God's law, uh, courteousness and, and good manners. And so, you know, he says that the harm that can come from joy of the will and moral goods is, you know, the vanity, the pride, the vainglory, the presumption, judging others to be evil and imperfect, seeking gratification and praise, not finding their reward in God. So he says that's once again why we just need to surrender that because there's all these, these, these things that can go along with us holding on to that that just aren't going to be profitable for us. Supernatural goods in the will, on uh, which the will can rejoice, are all the gifts and graces that God, of God that exceed our natural faculties and powers. So wisdom, knowledge, that's the Holy Spirit, working of miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits. It says the exercise of these gifts concern the prophet <clears throat> of other men, and God bestows them for that purpose. But the exercise and use of spiritual goods is only between the soul and God, and God and the soul, and in communion of intellect and will, etc., so it's always reaching out. It's always that generosity. That, that's, that's why God loves us, is that overflowing generosity of his love. He just loves us because he, he loves us. <laughs> it's, it's just, and that generosity is what we're called to have in everything, um, that we, we're generous with our forgiveness. We're generous with our love. We're generous with the things that God has blessed us with. And, and that, he says, as long as it's always being directed out and never to just us, uh, then we're going to properly see and utilize those things in the way that God has called us to. And so he says, you know, all supernatural goods must be guided by serving God in charity or they are to no avail. Okay, and then we're drawing to conclusion here. Uh, he says, we read in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus therefore said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And St. John of the Cross talks about if we do not seek to obtain joy of the will through supernatural goods, uh, there are two benefits to this. Uh, the soul concentrates only upon God, right? And then second, the exaltation of the soul and purest faith, which God then infuses and augments much more abundantly. So once again, now this is the supernatural. This is a, we're passive. God is active. Uh, we're just going to have our whole being as we're going to hear in the gospel today, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's exactly what happens when we allow that, the supernatural to happen in that passive uh, with the will. So Friar John discusses then the delightful goods that are clear and distinct. These are numerous, uh, motivating, provocative, directive, and perfective, and we're not going to get into any, in any detail on that. That is something that you can kind of look at on your own. Um, so he basically says, you know, he talks about how we ourselves, um, you know, to, we're, we're to always utilize these things that were given uh, to us to aid and assist our faith. So he talks, he gets into some discussion at the end here uh, uh, just about like statues and and beautiful churches and other things, and he, and he says, you know, like when we when we look at a statue of Mary, um, that we don't we don't become just overly focused on the statue. We don't just kind of get caught up then and looking at the detail and and all of that, and then we're just kind of uh, thinking of it kind of more in a superficial way, but he says we should be drawn into to that statue in a way that at some point it's aiding us like in our meditation, but then we actually move past it to the reality of like who Mary really is and then how she responded to God and how we're to imitate her as the first disciple and, and we move. So, so we're not just focusing on the statue and that's it. And that's like and, and he also even talks about how if we don't have that statue, like we're going around through our day and 
You know, most of our cities and towns, we don't have statues of Mary. You know, back in Europe, in Italy at least, you see like Mary in every coffee shop and everything, which is a beautiful thing. Um, but he says, if you don't have that statue, are, are you still thinking of Mary, right? Or if you don't have that statue of Jesus, are you thinking of Jesus? You know, so are we overly dependent on these external things to the point of where when we're, when we're out there in the world, um, that we don't rely on them so much, we're so dependent on them that we can't, we can't be drawn up into uh, who Jesus is or who Mary is or one of the saints without having that, that aid. So he's, so he's, not, he's not dismissing statues. He says they're, they're good and useful and helpful, but at some point we move past what the statue is in and of itself to, to the greater mystery behind it. I think this is a great way of, of seeing and understanding. And so that's what when we go into a beautiful church, you know, at first we're just, wow, that's just, you know. Um, and when you go into an ugly church, you know, what is your reaction? <laughs> My reaction is, first it's, wow, you gotta be kidding me. They spent how many millions and this is what they came up with? You know, big empty concrete shell, you know, it's just like, and then statues that you can't even tell who they are. It's like, is that Joseph or is that, hmm, I'm not sure who that is. Um, you know, these guys say, no, the, the beauty of church is supposed to uplift us. It's supposed to take us to the transcendent. But then once again, let's not get too focused on, we're just looking at all the detail of the church and all that. It's like, what is that, what is that beauty of that church to draw us to? It is to draw us to God. It is to lift them up. It is to bring us to that mystical union. And one of the great things is that whenever we celebrate mass, you know, we bring heaven and earth together right here. And so that should be done in a setting that is beautiful. And that is why these beautiful churches, they're, they're supposed to be a glimpse of heaven, of the heavenly Jerusalem. They don't even get close, right? The most beautiful, absolute beautiful church uh, out there. We'd have a really good competition going because there's, there's some really gorgeous, gorgeous churches out there, but they're just, they're just, Compared to what the heavenly Jerusalem is really going to be like, it's just going to be so amazing, so amazing. We just can't even imagine. You know, St. John the Cross, or St. John the Cross, uh, St. John the Evangelist, uh, you know, in his book of Revelation, he writes beautifully of the heavenly Jerusalem, you know, uh, the, the, the streets, you know, that are shining and gleaming and the gold gates and all the, you know, and take some time to just read that and then just, Say, Lord, now take me, take me to the higher and even greater understanding of what that is. Um, I remember this gentleman, he was dying of congestive heart failure and lifelong Catholic, good man, very generous with his wealth. And I remember we were talking about, you know, heaven and he, he just looks at me and he just said so simply, he goes, it must be so beautiful. It's just got to be the most beautiful place. I mean, you get to see in his eyes, uh, in his heart, he was just so yearning to go there. He could not wait. He absolutely could not wait. And that should be you and I. So Friar John, um, he basically says, uh, there are three different places that we, uh, he says, finds by which God usually moves the will. He says, beautiful outdoor settings with quietude. Really encourage that. He says, when a, when a person therefore prays in a beautiful sight, he should endeavor to be interiorly with God and forget the place as though we were not there at all. So whether we're out in a beautiful setting, you know, I come from Wyoming. I grew up in the beautiful mountains. Boy, when you're up in the mountains, you just know you're with God. Oh, you're just, you just, there's just something that just says God is here. Uh, I miss the mountains here, but I love, I love, uh, Nebraska and, uh, and the corn huskers, right? That's like, that, that, that always goes together. <laughs> and then he says, places, wilderness or not, which God usually grants some very delightful spiritual favors. Uh, one can return to this place, but without the expectation that you're going to have the exact same experience you did the first time, but it could be a, a good place to, to come back to, you know? And then those places that God chooses to be invoked and worshiped examples, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, we think of like Fatima, you know, to make a pilgrimage to Fatima or Guadalupe in Mexico City, Our Lady of Guadalupe, you know, very special places. Um, and then uh, lastly, he, uh, 
he talks about, he ends the ascent of Mount Carmel <clears throat> with the final statement. <clears throat> Elegant style and delivery lifts up and restores even those things that have fallen into room, ruin, just as poor presentation spoils what is good and destroys. So I hope all of you have found this helpful as an introduction to the Ascent of Mount Carmel. Um, get us to at least uh, get from the waiting pool. Now we're in the shallow end of the big pool, hopefully. And, uh, and hopefully I've done this with some elegance and style and delivery as St. John just spoke about. <clears throat> I know it is a lot to absorb and it's important for each of you to, to go back and to read and again and again, this, this monumental work um, with what you have learned and then step-by-step, step, you know, cooperating with God's grace, each of you can, can make the choice to, you know, jump into the deep end, right, from the high dive, which is essentially what it means to actively embrace the dark night of the senses and the spirit. And then once we're under that water, where all sight and sound are absent, uh, we open ourselves to the passive night of the senses of the spirit which God, he holds us under the water until the last moment when we're almost out of breath. And then we burst forth from the water, catching our breath and experiencing God in what we never, in a way that we never had before, in a way that words will fail to describe.